is Our American Stories. And now, here's the story of one of America's top comedians who became so successful, it scared him to death. Here's Dave Chappelle's story. This whole world is just drug-infested, hate-infested, drug-infested world. Hate drugs. I heard the worst drug story. You know what my friend told me? You know what he's dealing with? His landlord is hooked on crack. That's, that's terrible. That's pressure. Your landlord's hooked on crack. That means you've got to have the rent. <laughs> he come around. I got the rent. It's not even due yet. It's the 10th. Come on, I need it. <laughs> Let me just get $20 of it now and then uh, just give me the rest of the end of the month. Every couple hours. Hey, look, I'm going to need some more of the rent. This building's falling apart. Things came up. Comes home early from a party. Landlord's in the crib going through it. What are you doing in my house? Ah! Where's the sink? I came to fix it. It's in the kitchen. I thought it was in the drawer. I'll fix it tomorrow when I come for the rent. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. Born in Washington, D.C., the youngest of three children, both of his parents were college professors, and his mother was even a Unitarian minister. After graduating high school, Chappelle realized that he wanted to be in show business when his dad gave him some valuable advice. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. (laughs) So I was really breaking from tradition. And uh, it was like a graduation lunch we were having, and they had my dad come and talk to me, and my dad takes me outside, and he's like, listen. He says, to be an actor is a lonely life. Everybody wants to make it, and you might not make it. And I said to my dad, well, well that depends on what making it is, Dad. He was smart, smart-ass kid. It depends on what making it is, Dad. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you're a teacher. I said, if I could make a teacher's salary doing comedy, I think that's better than being a teacher. And he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of it. Chappelle moved to New York City and performed at Harlem's famed Apollo Theater in front of the infamous Amateur Night audience. But he was booed off stage. Dave Chappelle later described the experience as the moment that gave him the courage to continue his show business aspirations. So he quickly made a name for himself on the New York comedy circuit. At age 19, he made his film debut in Mel Brooks' Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He also appeared on Star Search three times but lost. The same year, Chappelle was offered the role of Bubba in Forrest Gump. Concerned the character was demeaning and the movie would bomb, he'd turn down the part. Just a few years later, his first lead role was in the 1998 comedy film Half-Baked, which he co-wrote. It was around this time that Chappelle landed a role in a pilot TV show based on his failure on stage at the Apollo. I was 23 when I was doing Half-Baked. I was getting ready to turn 24. And I was going through all the things that a dude goes through when it goes from one level to the next, starring in my, a movie that I wrote. So things start getting crazy around you. And my 24th birthday was coming on August the 24th, and I said, this is going to be a big one. And the morning that I turned 24, phone rang, and 
my sister was like, Dad had a stroke. For the next year, I watched my father teeter on life and death. And it was just all this stuff, man. Like I was a, Dad was down, half-baked, didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. I was real upset about that. Because it was a real cool script. And then I saw it. I was like, hey, man, you made a weed movie for kids. I get a call on my cell phone from Hollywood. I'm like, hello, Hollywood. They're like, hello, Dave. <laughs> They're like, that pilot you did for Fox, the, looks like they want to pick it up. We need you to come out because they want to meet with you. And I was like, well, listen, I can't really come out right now. Got a real bad situation at home. Can we talk about this on the phone? No, no, they would rather meet with you in person. Ah! I jumped on that plane and left my father's bedside, which I regret to this day. And I went out and I sat with these people in this room. Yeah, Dave, we really liked the show, but the, the pilot episode was about me getting booed off stage at the Apollo. They go, you know, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, there's not really any white people in it. So well, it's about the Apollo. It's not really white. Well, you know, we were thinking about the girl on the show. We didn't think she was that funny, not that good looking. I think we should recast her. Maybe, and they start using terms like universal appeal. Basically saying they want me to recast a girl with a white woman. I say, yeah, I don't think I can do this, and, and, and I quit. The following day, Dave Chappelle would learn a valuable lesson that he would never forget about the media and himself. The cover variety. Chappelle pulls the race card. The race card. And I get calls from... Newsweek, 60 Minutes, everybody, we want your story. <laughs> now I'm scared to death. I'm like Rosa Parks or something. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I was just venting a little bit. And then, a few months later, dad dies. And that's hard for a young dude in his life. That's a, that's a real tough loss. I was there when he died. and He went from being my father to what are we going to do? With the body, within moments, it was over. And I'm going through all this stuff, and this is the guy I would usually talk to, right? Dad. And I got to figure this out for myself. I don't want to figure this out for myself. You know, I was beat down. I wasn't living right. You know what I mean? Like, the weed thing was just bad habit at this point. And, and you know what I mean? All these, you know, chicken head girls you mess with when it comes with the territory. I'm just being real. Just being real. It wasn't living right, man. I didn't feel good. And, and the stand-up stuff was just some angry stuff. It was just like I was kind of bottoming out. But when my dad died, because I'd been commuting back and forth to Ohio so much, that's when I bought the farm. When we come back, the rest of the Dave Chappelle story, where he turns his back on Hollywood and a $50 million contract. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Story, and now we return to the story of Dave Chappelle. When we left off, Dave's father had died, so he decided to get his family out of L.A. and move to a farm in Ohio. Here's Jesse. So Dave and his family moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where his father had lived, buying a 65-acre farm. The illusion of fame and fortune in Hollywood was shattered forever. It's something so real in contrast to what Hollywood is, a very powerful illusion. And when your dad dies, it kind of just broke the spell, like, oh, this is bullshit. Look, I've been spending so much time doing this. What about my family? What about my friends? Wait, whatever happened to my friends? Dang, I don't even have any friends. Ugh. So I bounced, man. And, uh, New Year's Eve, 1999, I, I moved into that farm, and that was it. As far as I was concerned, I was done with show business. But his career in show business was just beginning. In 2003, he debuted his own weekly sketch comedy show on Comedy Central called Chappelle Show. After just two seasons, it was a massive success. Due to the show's popularity, Comedy Central's new parent company, Viacom, offered Chappelle a $50 million contract to continue production of Chappelle's show for two more years. Season 3 was scheduled to begin airing on May 31st, 2005, but Chappelle stunned fans and the industry when he abruptly left during production for South Africa. Let's start the show. Immediately following his departure, tabloids quickly and repeatedly speculated that Chappelle's exit was driven by drug addiction or a mental health issue. I was freaked out, man, with the fame thing and, and being called uh, crazy and drug addict and all these things. Uh, scared me. You know, being treated that way. Like I'm not a person anymore. And then I got to make some real choices, man. Is that what I want for myself? Did I get too big? Because I like people. I like entertaining. And the higher up I go, for some reason, the less happy I am. You know, is it going to get to the point where I'm doing a strip tease on TRL or waving a gun on the street, <laughs> saying they're trying to kill me? No, I'm not going to let it get to that point. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to find a way to, I'm going to find a way to be myself, man. I got to, in Africa, there's a small community of people that don't know anything about the work I do, and they just treat me like I'm a regular dude. So I knew that in Africa I'd have a place to sleep, that I wouldn't have to feel strange. And, you know, when they would call me crackhead and all these things in the country where I'm from, in Africa, they didn't know anything. They was feeding me and taking care of me and taking me to the mall and just regular stuff. And it just made me feel good. It just reminded me that I was a person, you know. It would be some time before Dave Chappelle went back to the United States from Africa, and 10 years before he would return to the stage with his stand-up comedy. I didn't even know they were saying those things about me. Then I called home, and people would be like, oh my God, are you all right? Yeah, chill, I'm in Africa, baby, what's going on? <laughs> and then I got a call from a journalist that had been working on a story, and he was like, yeah, rumor mill's going on about you. Just want to clear a few things up, and I'm like, yeah, hey, what's going on? Okay, uh... Do you smoke crack? I said, what? Do you smoke crack? Did you graduate from high school? Uh, I mean, it was all these crazy questions. 
And I thought about never coming back. I said, this, this place is crazy. Like, I'm, I'm that dude. I just thought about all the things that celebrities go through and what celebrities become in our culture. You know, if you Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston and your marriage is breaking up, that's an awful thing. But to see that speculation in people got to sting a little bit. And then I realized, oh, my God, I'm one of those people. That's a small club, man. That's a weird place to be. Ain't really no going back. You can't, you can't get unfamous. You can get infamous. So I got scared. I'm not going to lie, y'all. I was scared to death. And I, I didn't touch the mic. But, you know, it was cool, man. The first time I went back out and did stand-up, it was in Cincinnati. So it's not far from the farm. I said, if I got to run, I can get home fast. <laughs> and... Um, Club sold out real fast. I played a comedy club. And man, when I walked out on that stage and them people were screaming, I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. Because this industry can say whatever they want, but man, people will hold you up. And that crowd, man, my spirits were so low and they were just holding me up. And I, I hadn't told jokes, but this was just coming back like, cry the kid again, you're the best. Oh, man, I was just, I was, I was just doing it, man. In August of 2013, Dave Chappelle returned to full-time touring stand-up comedy as a headliner. In 2017, Netflix released two never-before-seen specials which would hail directly from Chappelle's personal comedy vault. The specials were an immediate success as Netflix announced a month later that they were the most viewed comedy specials in Netflix history. Also in 2017, Dave Chappelle walked into the newly renovated Chappelle Auditorium at Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina. Chappelle stopped to admire the work of Bishop William D. Chappelle, whom the auditorium is named after. He was a pastor, businessman, Allen University president, and more importantly, Dave Chappelle's great-grandfather. After being awarded the key to the city by the mayor, Dave Chappelle stopped by the auditorium to speak to an audience filled with students about the decisions he's made in his own life and the importance of staying true to yourself. For all the things that I've done, I'm most renowned for what I didn't do. I, I've made decisions in my career that a lot of people have called insane. 2004, I had a $50 million deal on the table, and in a crisis of conscience, flipped the table over and walked away. Went to South Africa. Everyone said I was running away from the money. That is not true. In fact, I still want that money. <laughs> the idea that I wanted to just share with you guys is the idea that sometimes you, you do what you think is best. Uh, whether anybody understands it or not. I heard a story about my father where someone told me he used to do statistics for a company in D.C. The company he did statistics for started doing business with the South African government. So he quit his job. It's caused a lot of problems between his, him and his wife. It's hard for a man when he can't provide for his family the way he wants to. And he suffered through it. And a generation later, when I had my crisis of conscience, I was able to go to a free South Africa and get away from the heat. This idea that what you do in your lifetime informs the generations that comes after you is something I keep thinking about, something that is so much bigger 
than just ourselves. And today I'm standing in front of you guys, and I know you guys are like, oh, I know you're bored. But I see family of mine in the front row that, that I, someone who I've never met, and I just realized how, how all, all of us are, are connected. That my great-grandfather built something more substantial than buildings. He, he built a community. And he built, more importantly than a community, he, he built a way. People are trying to replace the ideas of good and bad with better or worse. And that is incorrect. You got to keep your ethics intact because uh, good and bad is a compass that helps you find a way. And a person that only does what's better or worse is the easiest type of person to control. They are a mouse in a maze that just finds the cheese. But the one who knows about good and bad will realize that he's in a maze. It's okay to be afraid because you can't be brave or courageous without fear. The idea of being courageous is that even though you're scared, you just do the right thing anyway. So in 2004, I walked away from $50 million and in November, I made a deal for $60 million. So, although I am not the most famous comedian of my time, I would like to know what their great-grandfathers did. I'm, I'm very proud today. Thank you very much. And that's the story of the one and only Dave Chappelle testament to being true to yourself. He walked away from a $50 million contract, fame, and the adoration of his fans just to be there for his family and himself. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever, and that's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 15th feature on what happened on these exact days in history almost 200 years ago. As we talked about last episode, sitting around in one place all winter long can be quite boring. Although the core of discovery sure did see some eye-raising things. Here's William Clark. 12th November, Monday, 1804. A very cold night. Early this morning, the big white 
the principal chief of the lower village of the Mandans, came down. He packed about 110 pounds of fine meat on his square, his woman for us. Okay, making your woman carry 110 pounds while you walk next to her, carrying nada. I wish I could get away with that. Well, I can't with my wife, but it still leaves me curious how these Indian men accomplish this. And when we're bedeviled beyond belief, there's just one person that we're compelled to go to. Clay Jenkinson. For one thing, the Indians of the Great Plains had really hard lives. And it took everybody to make economic success This was true of white people, too. One reason why the white women got the vote sooner on the Great Plains and in the West than they did elsewhere is that everyone perceived that they were already full partners in the life of homesteading and these small farms and ranches. And the women had to do a great deal of the work in Indian culture. They grew the gardens. That Men thought that that was women's work. They helped butcher the buffalo and other animals that were killed during the hunts. They had to maintain order in the lodge, so they were housekeepers much the same way that white women on the frontier were. And they frequently had to carry large loads. In fact, women mostly ran the bull boats, the round willow-framed bull boats that Indians used not to go up and down the river but across it. And in many of these plains cultures, women actually owned the lodges. They were the principal house owners. And the men lived there with them, but a woman could divorce her husband more or less at will just by taking his personal belongings and setting them outside the door of of the lodge. So in some ways, there probably was more gender equality in Indian country during this time, during the age of Thomas Jefferson, than there was in white civilization. So we, we need to keep that in mind. And these tribes lived in almost continuous warfare with very little defensive abilities. And so this was a full-time occupation for men. It, it didn't work continuously as it does for us. They, they didn't work eight to five and they didn't work five-day work weeks. It came in short bursts, so there might be periods of weeks when men had little to do except be on guard in case there were raid from other tribes. But during that time, they tended to, to loaf, to smoke, and to talk. Uh, and to gather in in exclusively male societies. But suddenly there would be a sighting of buffalo nearby, and everyone would scramble and work extremely hard for two days or five days or a week. Or there would be a raid on another Indian village a few hundred miles away, and this would occupy all of the young and strongest men of the tribe in a really intense and extremely dangerous way. The women were more steady. They were home tanning hides, preparing meals, um, raising children with the help of grandparents. And so the women's work, in a certain sense, was continuous, and the men's work was uh, sporadic, and but extremely intense and dangerous. So that's a rough, simplistic reading of, of the, the way it was working. But remember that Lewis and Clark are not objective. Lewis and Clark try to be objective, but they're actually carrying a great deal of cultural baggage with them. And even before they left, they had some really strong preconceptions about what Indian life was like. Read these in books. Jefferson himself 
self-perpetuated myths about Native Americans. There was a lot of fantasy uh, and just sheer misunderstanding from one culture to the next, especially in a period before there were trained linguists. So one of the things that Lewis and Clark had been told would be true is that Indian women were drudges. The term they always use is drudge. That Indian women had to do backbreaking work, that they did all of the, the manual labor of the tribe, that men did nothing or, or, if anything, just hunted and fought wars, and that the women essentially were the, the backbone of the Native American economy, whereas in the civilized world, in the white world, women were protected as much as possible from those sorts of labors, and it was a part of white, especially white Virginia gentry civilization that women should be what uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, the great British feminist, called ephemeron triflers. That is, that they would have no particular function except to be pretty and to make sure their clothing was perfect and their hair was well done and that they said gracious but not challenging things in the presence of men. And so the white paradigm at this time was to severely limit hard labor for women, particularly as you went up the class scale. And they carried this preconception that this was the most civilized possible way to live with them. In fact, Jefferson said as much and said that the, he saw this in France where he saw peasant women doing hard labor. And he said, you can measure a civilization by how much it exempts women from doing hard physical labor. That was a cultural norm and a cultural prejudice, but it didn't happen to obtain in the same way in Indian country. And, and, and therefore, when Lewis and Clark saw women performing duties like this, uh, they just immediately went to their mythology and said, look, there they are, slaves, drudges, domestic slaves. And that language recurs again and again. The Native Americans that I have spent a lot of time talking with about this journey really object to that and particularly a woman named Amy Mossett, who is a Lakota Mandan woman who gave lectures about Sarkagawea, and she said the idea that Indian women were drudges is really just offensive to Native Americans, especially Native American women, and it doesn't even begin to understand the complexities of the Native American social structure or the economy. So I think we have to take what Lewis and Clark say with a grain of salt. On the other hand, when you read this entry, that Sheheke, the big white, brought them more than 100 pounds of meat, and he brought it on the back and shoulders of his wife, apparently carrying nothing himself. What else would, were they supposed to think? This does seem like a very uneven division of labor in itself, and beyond that, more than 100 pounds of meat, you know, any man today would be hard-pressed to carry a load of animal flesh that heavy for a very long distance. And so Lewis and Clark may, in some respects, be exaggerating when, when they notice this. But it has a slightly, to us, it has a slightly comic feel. But I think we, we have to be really careful about, A, accepting Lewis and Clark's lens as inevitably objective, and B, projecting our cultural norms on to a people who were extremely successful in living on the Northern Great Plains in a way that white people weren't, at least until the rise of the fuel-injected car in the post-1960s era. 
And what a story. And we continue with our most epic road trip ever series. And by the way, you can hear all of them on OurAmericanNetwork.org. We're going to keep going. And thanks, as always, to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson, giving us a context, giving us a perspective, dealing with what, well, Lewis and Clark wrote, but then what was really going on in these, well, these very different and competing cultures. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at ClayJenkinson.com. He is also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to the life and work of Thomas Jefferson. And yes, if there's a founder who deserves it, well, Jefferson's one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And HBO, not too long ago, put out a, a story about a young Pakistani girl whose family tried to murder her. But they didn't call it murder. They called it honor killing. The idea that if a young woman brings shame to the family, she deserves to die. But as we'll see, this practice has little to do with honor or justice. The name of the documentary, A Girl in the River. And again, It's HBO. The girl from the film is named Saba. She wanted to marry a young man unapproved by her family. So she went off and married him anyway. Her defiance led to her father and uncle teaching her a lesson. After I got married, I did not even spend one day with my husband. We only spoke for an hour or two. I had no alone time with him. I did not spend the night at my in-laws. My relatives came and got me. They said, return home to uphold our family's honor. Then Kaysar can come and take you back honorably. After that, they put their hand on the Quran and promised they wouldn't harm me. They had a Toyota and they put me in the car. Because they had sworn on the Quran, I had no fear in my heart. Soon afterwards, my uncle stopped the car and pulled me out. Then he started slapping and beating me. I was conscious during all the beatings and hittings they subjected me to. I remember trembling with fear and begging, but they didn't listen to me. A pistol was pointed at my brain near my temple, and my uncle was clutching my neck. But I was slightly able to tilt my face, which led to the shot missing its target. Then they put me in a bag and threw me in the river so I would go right to the bottom and no one would ever find out what happened. God did not want me to die. They tried to kill me, but I survived. Fate protected me from their bullets. In the future, fate might let me die by their hands. Only God knows these things. I slowly regained consciousness and got out of the river. Then I saw the light of a motorcycle in the distance, And I started following the light and slowly began walking towards it. I came to a gas station and that's where I went for help. Saba's story is the basis of the Oscar-winning film directed by Sharmin Obaid Shinoy. It's amazing that Saba survived such a traumatic experience and the chance to share it. 
Well, that's even more amazing. Here's the director speaking about the importance of this film. I think it was very important to tell the honor killing story from the point of view of a survivor. Unfortunately, 99% of the cases, the women perish, not unable to tell their stories. Saba survived. Not only did she survive, she fought back. She got out of the river. She found a local fuel station. And the beauty of the story is that in this small town, the social services worked for Saba. The paramedics picked her up. She was taken to a local government hospital, which was run by a fantastic doctor who got his best surgeons to save her life. The local police in charge sent out investigators to find her father and her uncle and eventually did and jailed them. What would motivate a father to attack his own daughter? and then to feel entirely justified doing it? The director, Charmaine, spoke with the father, and here's what she found. The father and the uncle were defiant. They believed that what they did was right and that they would go back and do it again. Her father said to me, looking straight at me, that, yes, she's my daughter. I wanted to kill her. I provided her with food, shelter. How dare she defy me? How dare she go out without my permission? And uh, I... I'm ready to spend my entire life in jail because this is something that I've done for my honor, the honor of my family. She has shamed us. He said something like, I used to feed her three times a day. You know, you feed animals three times a day as well. He didn't look at her as another human being. At that point, I chose not to argue with him because I was extremely angry because these men get away with saying that this has something to do with religion when it absolutely has nothing to do with religion. You know, I mean, one of the most interesting things about the Muslim faith is that when a woman is getting married, a cleric has to ask her three times if she agrees to that marriage. If she hesitates even once, he is not to marry her off. So how can that religion condone honor killings? Indeed, this is not about religion. It was about hurt pride. Saba's response to what happened to her was to fight back. But this would prove to be an unfair fight. Well, Saba was very determined to fight the case. She wanted to make examples of her father and her uncle. There is a line in the film where she says that, you know, I want them to be shot in public so that no other man, no other father, no other uncle, no other brother does this to a woman in his family. And when I first met her, she had this fire in her. And she had a wonderful pro bono lawyer. They went to court. They began the proceedings. But the law did not support her. In Pakistan, in cases of honor killings, uh, the way it works, unfortunately, is that if a father kills his daughter, his wife can forgive him. If a brother kills a sister, the parents can forgive. In this case, because Saba survived, the community members, the neighborhood, they said that they would ostracize uh, the in-laws if she did not forgive. This film forced the conversation forward in Pakistan because it showed the government and public a real-life victim that had survived. There was now a face to this ongoing tragedy. They could no longer turn a blind eye. The film uh, has created quite a stir in Pakistan. The prime minister came out and said that he wanted to work on the issue of honor killings. And he has since then met with me. He has uh, spoken to members of his political party. They are going to be working to plug the loopholes in the law, making sure that there is no forgiveness in cases of honor killings. You know, I think that the prime minister was inspired to come out and speak about this issue, saying that there is no place for honor killings in Islam and that we must make that clear to everybody. If this law passes, honor killings will be a crime against the state, not against an individual, which means that the state has to prosecute and you cannot forgive. 
A lot of things can go wrong, but if in a town three or four people go to jail for it, the fifth person will think twice before shooting somebody in his family. In the beginning of her trial, Saba was not alone. Her pro bono lawyer worked very hard to help her seek justice. Honor killing under the Pakistani law should be treated as a murder, and the case should be prosecuted in the court of law as any murder case. But what happens is that in most cases, the near relatives who are allowed under law can forgive the accused. So for example, if father kills his daughter, the rest of the family members forgive him. The killers in honor killing cases are allowed to be acquitted. And that is also one reason why honor killings are rising because people get to know that if they kill their daughters their sisters they may still go scot free this is not just sabha's cause it's the society's cause it's a question of public policy whether in such cases compromise or forgiveness should be allowed to happen or not but seeking justice is a long drawn process and women are at a great social and institutional disadvantage women in pakistani society live as second rate citizens or perhaps even worse saba's lawyers went to great lengths to help her even meeting with the elders of the community to try and reason with them but social pressure plays a very powerful role there and while saba did want to seek justice sometimes the corruption well it's just rooted too deeply I can understand why she is inclined to reach a compromise. Our justice system is not strong enough to provide her security. Let's assume the accused are convicted and sentenced to 5 years of imprisonment and they come out and then they again try to kill her. Who is going to protect her? And one of the accused is her own father and he's the only breadwinner of the family. So it makes worldly sense to forgive him. When the law allows for this kind of settlement, the courts in such instances have become mere uh, post offices. They just record the statement of the victim. This is something which strengthens male superiority. Then came the day where Saba had to choose whether or not to forgive her uncle and father. At first, I was sitting outside and was feeling sick. Then the judge greeted me and said, "Come forward." Then he said, "Child, do you wish to forgive them? Do we have your permission?" I said yes. The Pakistani justice system may be broken, but Saba's will certainly isn't. If the elders hadn't pressured me. I would have never forgiven them. I said to myself, the longer they stay in prison, the better for everyone. I forgave them for society's sake. I listened to my family and forgave them. But in my heart, they are never forgiven. Let's end with some of Saba's final thoughts. Kesar and I will have a baby soon. I hope it is a girl so she can be brave. I hope she can do good things and be educated. I hope she can work if she wants to. She should do whatever her heart desires. God is the one who decides. But I 
would like to have a girl. On October 6, 2016, Pakistan passed a new law. From then on, perpetrators of so-called honor killings would be prosecuted by the state and they could no longer walk free if simply pardoned by the victim's family. Saba's bravery on display. This remarkable film, this remarkable story by HBO, A Girl in the River. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special Fathers series, which tells the stories of fathers with special needs children. And it's brought to us by the Special Fathers Network, which matches up longtime fathers with special needs children with brand new ones for fellowship and mutual counseling on their shared journey of ups and downs. And you can learn more about it at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. And now, here's our own Alex Cortez with this edition. Life was going great for Randy Lewis. He rose to become a vice president at Walgreens. And then, he had a son with autism. And a new life that would be different. Only 58% of young adults with autism are employed, and fewer get married. I learned that disabilities plays no favorites. Rich, poor, black, white, whatever color, brown, plays no favorites. And I was thinking about all those people, you know, wealthy people, not-so-wealthy people, people who struggle. What are they going to do? And here I am in charge of this division. I got 10,000 people, a billion dollar budget. If I can't do something about this, who will? And if, you know, we're a successful company like Walgreens, and if Walgreens couldn't do something about it, which company would? And before Randy Lewis was a father, he was a son. My father was not expressive, and I always longed that he would. I longed that he would hug me, or but that that was not his style. Not that he didn't have the feelings. He wasn't comfortable enough doing it, because men didn't do that. So I used that in the memory of it as a child to always let my kids know I love them. I mean, they're so tired of it. Austin, who has autism, I've told him, a thousand times I've loved him. And he never says, when you tell your child, I love you, you're really asking them a question to respond back, I love you too. And Austin's never done that. He responds, why do you always say that? <laughs> and, and then I say, well, do I always say that? Well, no. And, I, and so we try to put it another way. Austin, you know how much I love you. And... 
that's a tough question for him, but he always has interesting answers. His most interesting one is all day long. And Kay and I thought, well, that's a that's a good enough answer. We'll go with that. If that's the one we have, that's the one we'll deal with. Maybe Austin's right, and Randy might have overcorrected a little bit with this love thing. But what would you do if it took your father 22 whole years to tell you that he loved you? One of the most touching moments for me and my dad, the night before I was going to leave for Peru to go to the Peace Corps, he came into my room that night. And I'd never had a talk, you know, you see on TV, those father-son talks. You know, that was not the relationship I had with that. I don't remember a single one. And he came into my room and he said, I'm proud of what you're doing. There's always time for the rat race. And once you get in it, it's hard to get out. And I'm glad you're doing that. And I'm proud to have you as my son. And I love you. And that's, I think that's maybe the only time I remember, the first time. And after that, there were lots of times when my father told me he loved me. Love? that he'd need. Randy and his wife Kay felt like something might be different about Austin. He didn't cry at all when he came out of the womb and he put himself to sleep as a toddler, but they didn't make much of it. And finally at three years old, after family members kept whispering that Austin was different, they had him tested. At least so that, as Randy put it, they can get their family off their back. About a week later, they called us in for the results. And so we came in, very optimistic, sat down, and first thing Kay said was, I know you're going to tell me I'm giving him too much sugar. And he did not smile. And I thought, well, either he doesn't have a very good personality or it's not going to be good. So he started reading through the results, and it was bad, bad, bad. We couldn't test him on this because he didn't have the level of skill even to be administered to test. Yum, bum, bum. On and on. And uh, he called it pervasive developmental delay. PDD. Which is a term they use now. But not as much. But that was sort of a precursor to autism. A way of saying, okay, we don't know what it is. But I, you know, a lot of times that's a code for, for us parents when we hear that it's autism and I remember saying well will he grow out of it will he get better and he stopped he looked up from his papers and he looked at us and he said he might get worse and that's when the bottom fell out so Kay and I took the walk back to the car Kay was crying I was stoic. We got in the car, and she told me later, she looked at the sky and said, why can the sun be shining on a day like this? How could God let this happen? And I, trying to be the optimist, and I said, who's better prepared to deal with this than us? You know, we have a loving marriage. We have some means, we'll get through this. Who knows what will come up. Now, I said that as much to me as I did to her at the time. And that's when the journey started. 
And when we come back, the Lewis family's journey, the Special Fathers Network bringing us our Special Fathers series, Why Would the Sun Be Shining on a Day Like This? His bride said to him, How could God let this happen? The answer to this and more. Randy Lewis's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our special father's feature and the story of Randy Lewis, his wife, and his son Austin, and their battle with autism. What they got with Austin's autism was unique. They're all unique. There's a saying in autism, once you've seen one person with autism, you've seen one person with autism. And now they're even calling it the spectrum because it's so wide. I mean, there's a large percent of people who never speak, who are not verbal. Austin was not verbal. He was taking that track. And then there's also other things that go with it. You know, you can have IQ issues with it. People with autism have huge IQs, but there are people with autism that don't. And the problem is, you don't know because they're so young and they don't have the skills yet to expose those abilities or not. With a young child when they're diagnosed, you're, you're taking a track. Your first reaction is, let's fix this. And mostly guys think that. You know, that, that's our toolbox. If there's a problem, let's fix it. And that was kind of what I wanted to do. And then everybody that has read any article about anything will give you help. They will say, there's a music therapy, or there's a uh, this therapy here, or this therapy there. We had everybody trying to give us help, trying to give us solutions, and those could be overwhelming. And we had to make a decision how much we were willing to do and devote and, and focus on Austin he had two years later, Austin had a sister, our third child came along. So we had three children when, when this was going on. When Austin was diagnosed, we had a, a newborn. So we had to make a decision about the rest of the children. He's going to take more energy than any other child we have. But how much are we willing to siphon off all the other energy for our girls, for Austin? Because we only have so much energy, how do we do that? How do we strike a balance? Because we see, we were afraid because it's easy for your child with a disability to become the complete focus of the family and the other siblings grow up with that. So we had to strike a balance. So we had, we made a decision. Yes, we're going to pursue with us when 
possible, but we're not going to move to Canada, and we're not going to try everything uh, along the way. We want to try to bring Austin, who we called our Martian. You know, we're Earthlings, but we had a Martian land on Earth. How little Martian live effectively on Earth, because the world's not going to become Martians for him. Well, this Martian may not have changed the whole world yet, but he has changed his father. One thing that Austin, his gifts to me, were, were many, but, uh, and I think all parents of a child with disability will say this, is patience. You, we all fuss at our children. We, we, lose, we lose patience with them and we'll have an outburst that happens. Now, with Austin, what happens with him, you know, he shrinks back and he stops behavior. But long after the emotion of it has gone out of me, the anger about the moment, he will come back a day later, two days later, a month later, and recall that moment and relive the emotions of that moment. And it shames me. And so I learned to control myself, my bad impulses. And it also made me realize it had the same effect on my, on my daughters when I would do it to them, but they have the skills not to show it or the coping skills that Austin didn't. I mean, they felt the same way. It was, it was bad for them just as it was for Austin. That was a huge gift that Austin gave to me. And being able to see people who are way different as completely worthy. Austin has taught me to see a different person and to be able to understand the love that these kids have and everybody has. I mean, typically able or not, and that's that's been a huge gift. He's given me a humanity that was not... Maybe it was there, but he sure has been able to stroke it and help build it in me, and that's one of the things that I'm, I'm very grateful for him. Austin so affected Randy positively that he couldn't keep this impact away from his work life as the head of logistics at Walgreens. This was a brave decision. Randy decided to be vulnerable with his work colleagues at their distribution centers. So I started talking to our general managers, saying we ought to do something about this. Tell them the story of Austin, hopefully inspire them, and kind of just let them on their own to go do something. Work with school systems, maybe hire some kids here and there, but that, that didn't work out that well. It wasn't scalable. We had 20 centers across the country. Some people did something. Most people didn't. And then uh, we built some centers, four big centers in about the year 2000, and some people went out and got these groups working in them that contract out. And that was okay, but then we said, let's hire some people out of this group, and some people did, and what we found, that experience worked is our employees. So it came time to build a brand-new center, and we were going to make it more automated. We were going to make it the most efficient center in the whole world of its kind, travel the world for the technology. It's going to be the most expensive. And it was going to be in Anderson, South Carolina, a small region of 75,000 
And I thought, why can't we just tweak this new automation and the new IT? Why don't we just tweak it to enable a group of people to perform as well as anybody just by tweaking the equipment? And, oh, by the way, let's go with the big number. We wanted a number that would inspire us, so let's hire one out of three people to be people with a disability. Now, how I came up with the number was when we had people working in our centers with disabilities, typically because we didn't want to pay for job coaches, we'd put them with two, among two people, volunteered workers to have that person as their co-worker, and they'd work alongside, and they would mentor that person, and they were successful. Our past said that would work here and there, two people for every person with a disability, that one out of three. And then when I asked an autism expert, how many typically able co-workers for each person, let's say, with autism, we thought that's a difficult disability, would we need? And he said, probably two. So we had two data points, so that became the numbers. We're going to have 600 employees. It's something you know, nobody had ever done, a mission-critical site with that big a number, 200 people out of 600 people. And we launched that. And we had that number because it had to inspire us. Nobody, We had to tell the team, Nobody's ever done this, and the standard is to give it your best. Now, if there's a process that gets in the way or a policy we have that you can't get around, come to me. But otherwise, we're going to make mistakes, figure it out, give it your best, because if it doesn't work, what we're going to tell the world, nobody else can do it, because we gave it our best, and that we want to sleep well at night. So that number of 30% became 40%. Next building we opened, it was 50%, and then we brought all the GMs. And they saw what was there and the culture it created and the performance and all that kind of thing, and they all wanted to do it. So they set a goal for themselves, a thousand people with disabilities within four years, 10% of the workforce, which they achieved. And then having achieved that, and we all, by the way, and one of the things that, that helped inspire us was appealing to our better angels, says, when we do this, we used to never let anybody in our centers. We would, you know, we thought we were the best or either the worst. We didn't want anybody else to know about. But we didn't share things with other companies. They were our competitors. But on this, we said, when we do this, if we're successful, we're going to give it away. We're going to open our doors to the world, even our competitors. And I think that appeals to people that we're working for something bigger than us. And I think that it challenged everybody and inspired everybody to do it. So they set a goal for 1,000, achieved it, and then they set a goal for, for 2,000, 20%, which they're working on now. And we did give away, and lots of other companies came. Uh, Best Buy, uh, P&G came, UPS, some companies overseas, Marks & Spencer in the U.K., and it continues to grow. We're working for something bigger than us. You're listening to Randy Lewis's story, his son Austin's story, and now we're learning about a major company in this country, Walgreens Response. And it's remarkable, and it's beautiful. And by the way, what the dad said about Austin, I learned to control my bad impulses. And that was a huge gift to me and to my family. Special Father Series... Brought to us by the Special Fathers Network. Randy Lewis's story and his family's here on Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Story, Randy Lewis and his son Austin's story. And by the way, if you want to pick up Randy's book on this subject, No Greatness Without Goodness, you can go to Amazon.com and pick it up. But now the rest of the story. We go back and return to Alex Cortez. It even led some universities to come down and study what the heck was going on here. And could these Walgreens distribution centers measure up to the quote-unquote normal ones? The study shows productivity is the same, safety is better, retention is better, all those kind of things. So there, there was no really downside except to do something different. And then Randy shared what this all has really meant. A powerful personal story of one of the very first differently abled employees at their South Carolina distribution center. You know, when we made this announcement that we were going to hire 200 people in this one building, people with disabilities, I, you know, I was shocked that the, the bell it rang across the country. You know, 200 people. I mean, Wall Street Journal wrote an article on it, and NBC News came, and ABC. 200 people. Is a, is a situation so desperate that this is a big deal? And I remember we had one woman who, here we are in South Carolina, getting ready to open up South Carolina. The news gets all the way out to California. This woman, Desiree, working out there as a temp. She has a disability, a rare muscle condition that requires that she use a walker. So one day, Desiree's over there in San Diego working as a temp at this uh, admin position and she comes in with her walker and her boss says what's the deal with the walker and Desiree says well I don't use it all the time but sometimes I need it and he says great come back when you don't Desiree packed up her bags moved her family across the country a year before we opened just for the chance to apply and now she is a supervisor in that building and Randy couldn't help himself but to continue. A young man named Chuck, he's on the autism spectrum. We hired him and put him between two ladies. And we hired him in our Pennsylvania center before we opened up our center in uh, South Carolina. He was one of the guys that kind of gave us the idea, yeah, this two, two for one would work. Because Chuck did a great job. But, you know, once or twice a day, a purple plastic tote would pass through his area. And Chuck would stop and start dancing and yell out in glee for everybody's attention so that's how we knew his favorite color was purple and then the question was is this something we can accommodate is this behavior appropriate for a professional work environment and we kind of came to the conclusion when it comes down to it which would we prefer complaining or dancing so we said let's go with the dancing and randy continued storytelling some more. In our Connecticut center, which was the second center, and that's almost 50% of the people with disabilities, there's a young man named Chris who is, has TBI, traumatic brain injury. I didn't know his disability. But if you meet him, you would think he's the most charming guy in the world. I mean, his co-workers love him. He loves them. As a matter of fact, I think he calls himself the mayor of the <laughs> work area. And every time I go to the center, I always go talk to Chris. As a matter of fact, he's one of the few pictures that I have on my wall, Chris and I standing together. 
because he, he did make the place better and he's fantastic. So last time I was there, he said, my mom would really like to talk to you. So I said, okay. And that's always you wonder what that call is going to be like. So I call her up and she's very gracious. She said, oh, I recognize your voice from the you know, TED Talk. And I said, well, it's great to talk to you. And she says, you know, Chris loves his job. And he gets there an hour and a half before his shift starts. So he can meet with his friends and, and talk to them and they sit in the cafeteria and talk. And she said, that's so important to him because when Chris was in high school, he sat alone. And now he has friends and a reason to come to work early. We don't think about those things. That's something we just don't, it's just below our radar. And when you hear that, it makes it all worthwhile. How Absolutely. many of those other Chris's are sitting out those in those school cafeterias today? Knowing stories like that makes it easy to keep carrying the ball forward, even when you get knocked down occasionally. And that's why I've stayed in this, you know, four years after retirement, continuing to advocate and share the story and to help more businesses do this, which they are, gratefully, which they are. And these awesome folks like Chris, Chuck, and Desiree are truly normal employees, at least as far as Walgreens is concerned. From the get-go, I mean, we had to remember we're a business, not a charity. So if we were going to make this work, we said we're going to do same, same performance standard, same pay, same jobs, side by side. And I think that's what made it successful. If we were going to be able to sustain it, that was a standard we had to do. And some people will ask, what kinds of disabilities could you not hire? And we've determined, I mean, we've been at this 10 years now. We haven't found a single type of disability that we'd automatically exclude. Because everything is a spectrum. Everything is a spectrum. For example, mental illness. You know, that's a scary one. (laughs) Everybody's afraid of mental illness. And uh, we had to think, well, we know we already have people with compulsive uh, OCD, uh, compulsive disorder, something like that, or depression, or paranoia, and that's just a senior executive. <laughs> so, hey, we already have experience, what we go. <laughs> and we did. It worked out across the board. Now, not every person with autism will be successful, not every person with mental illness be successful but guess what among our typically able population not everybody will be successful too and we we had to kind of look at it that way but oh by the way a lot more people were successful than most people would give them the credit for and they changed us too for the better and here's randy lewis's closing advice for parents with differently abled children here's the biggest thing in those early years, all the stories we play in our head are all the things that can go wrong. You know, we see we, we see the doom stories more than we see the hope story. Here's what I learned. Austin turned out so differently than I had projected. Most of those bad stories don't come true. Some of them will, but know that the, your worst story probably won't. And our children continue to develop. Austin is not the same man at 28 as he was at 27 either. 
and certainly not at 21. That the story will be different than the one that goes on in your head. I was shocked to learn Austin learned to drive. That was the same thing as the child learning summa cum laude from Harvard. That changed his life that much. He drives, and then I found out he gets on the train and goes to Chicago by himself. And then he rents a bicycle bike. I've never seen that. And oh, by the way, Austin is the only person in the house with a steady paycheck now. He works at a Meyer distribution center and drives an hour away. He's been working there for three years, full-time jobs. Oh, and oh, by the way, good begets good because Meyer, you know, the big chain here in the Midwest, they took our program. And the uh, CEO called me up and said, we're going to open up the center in Wisconsin. I don't know if it's near you, but if it is, we'd like one of our first employees to be Austin. Who would have thought that? You know, what goes around, it, comes we around. We didn't have any centers yeah. near us, so I didn't do this for Austin. I thought maybe in the worst case, if I had to move maybe to another city where one of these were, I could beg for a job. But it turned out to be much better than that. And what an amazing story about bringing differently abled Americans into the workplace. Randy's story, his son Austin's story, Chris, Chuck, Desiree, Walgreens, and so many other companies. The Special Fathers series brought to us by the Special Fathers Network. And you can learn more and sign up to be a part of this fantastic network at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we do every kind of conceivable story here on this show from sports to the arts from history to well we've done eulogies here on this show they're so moving and we call it final thoughts and we've done uh, any number of them and go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do and uh, a few weeks ago we saw a headline in the Wall Street Journal great news for pet indulgers the cone of shame can be a pillow and the cone of course they're referring to is that cone that we put around a pet's neck after a surgery And in my particular case, as a young man, our pet dog, Bogey, used to chew on his tail and it got so bad, we had to put that cone of shame around him and boy, it was uncomfortable. And in it, we bumped into a lady named Linda Markfield and she works at All Four Paws in Santa Monica, California. And Linda, well, as always with Americans, we come up with great ways to solve problems. And Linda, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, Linda, before we start, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, you, you started a business, and you started it around something you love, around pets and animals. Talk about how you started your business and why. Well, people seem to laugh when I say this, but the honest truth is I've been doing products for over 30 years. I started with children's products because I'm cheap and lazy and I had a lot of kids. So I just hate wasting time and money. So the products that I do were when I need them. And it's really, the products will be worth the money, and they will solve a problem. So it will save you time and money. Yeah, you're figuring if I got the problem, somebody else out there has got the problem, too. Absolutely. Well, in 2000, your dog, Saber, had a problem. Talk about the problem and the problem you solved. 
he had uh, part of his tail removed, and it just was, you know, he was in a traditional plastic cone. And, you know, there's two ways of thinking about it. If the owner will leave a plastic cone on, eventually the dog will heal as miserable as they are and the owner is. But I, like 99% of the, of the owners of a pet, took the plastic off, and I had to go back the next day to the vet to get restitched, Saber to get restitched. So I realized there had to be something better and something I would leave on. So I just made the first one out of an exercise mat, and it was developed from there. And the exercise mat, then how does that turn into a product, Linda? Because that's just so interesting. You're solving it yourself. Did people see it and say, wow, that's something? Or did something click in your mind where you went, hey, there's something to this. I think I I can solve some other people's problems. I realized how it worked so much better, and he slept, and he was more relaxed. So from the exercise mat, I started developing which, which materials would be best, what things are most comfortable, how stiff it has to be, how long it needs to be, the sizing. So it started from that, and when I realized that it did work, but I needed to make it a little better, I worked with vets and their opinions and you know, other people, and from that, Comfy Cone was developed. And now this this comes in all different sizes for all different necks. I mean, you're talking from the smallest pets to the biggest pet. What kind of a dog was Saber, by the way? He was a Great Pyrenees, very large, 180 pounds. So um, we need to make a very big one. And do cats need these cones, too? Do cats do this as much as dogs? Will they sort of eat their own uh, stitches as well? Yes. And, then, you know, it's also that you can put it over feeding tubes, IV lines. You can even turn it backwards. But, you know, when I was saying before about everything was a development, and just from realizing that it did work, we started uh, hearing from doctors that did a lot of eye surgery. So we realized that it needed to be something that was a little tougher at times. And because of that, I put removable plastic stays in three pockets in the cone. So I did it for two reasons. One, that they're removable, so if you're with your pet and you're supervising, you can take them out and fold it back, fold the comfy comb back. But if you're not with them, or if it's an eye surgery where you can't take a chance of anything happening to the stitches because the pet could lose an eye, then you leave the stays in. So I, I kind of mesh together the plastic and the soft. But also because I realized, you know, doing things as a pet owner, I also realized that I had to make something that pet owners would leave on because they felt their pets were more comfortable. Yep, and, and this comfort is the thing that matters. I remember my dog, just how much he hated that cone, and it wasn't just that it embarrassed him. I think he saw all the other dogs look at him and got, <laughs> got self-conscious. But you could tell that it was really irritating his neck, and yep, it was just yep. so hard. Uh, so, so the movie Up, by the way, uh, which came out in 2009, the, the recovery cone got a really bad rep. If you remember, Alpha forced yes. Doug to wear that cone as punishment, and I thought... That just really hurts. What a mean son of a gun Alpha was. Talk about that because, you know, in the end, do you think the dogs know? Do you think they know? I don't See, that's why I said at the beginning that, you know, if you leave any device on a dog, a plastic cone, let's say, 
eventually they will heal. But as humans, we project, and we want pets are family now. It's not just a matter of having a, a pet for protection or other needs. They are a family, and you want your family to be more comfortable. And since we have the ability to create things, why not do that? And also we realize with working with vets, you know, a misconception that uh, pets need to see their peripheral vision, and which really is not true. They don't have the same peripheral vision as humans. And what happens is if they can't see through something, they everything's distorted a little. So they think, what am I seeing? What's that shadow? What do I do? I'm in a device. How do I protect myself? But I realize that dogs realize things just like horses, like blinders on a horse. If they don't see something, it doesn't exist for them. So they relax, and they're not worried about what's around them. Yeah, I know. We have, a, we have a dog that just so overreacts to everything. We have a lot of windows in our house. We were thinking of getting the cone just so she could relax because she's just so hyper. And I know about blinders and horses. We love horses yeah. on this show. And it, I think it would actually help her. But I think she would spend all of her life trying to get out of that cone all day long. Uh, it's very, very tough. Tell me this. So you, you make the product. How do you market the product, Linda? I mean, obviously, you're trying to solve your own problem, but you're a business person. What's the next step? How do you get this product to market? How does it get to the attention of the Wall Street Journal? It's remarkable. Thank you. Um, Well, we went to a trade show uh, right after I had gotten the product manufactured, and um, it just did very well. And it really, I have to thank uh, all our customers it's done very well, and they're the reason that we have been successful. But we also uh, will listen to pros and cons at, in the company. I love creating problems, uh, but I, I creating products. Is this going to be okay because I can barely talk? No, don't worry about it. Just start over. Just say I love creating products. You're, you're sounding fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. I love creating products. I lost my train of thought there. Um, what was your question again? Well, it was just, you know, get, bringing it to market, and you were oh, getting right, right to the area of, you know, you love creating products, but you listen to, you like to listen to all cons. sides. Right. Yeah. We, and then we realized that there are, like, dachshunds that have little necks but long snouts. So I started creating sizes that would work for that. I would take a small neck size with a medium size uh, length. And I did the same for, like, greyhounds and other types of pets. I really do try to correct things that don't work and to add things that will work. And, you know, believe it or not, the next product that I did, the Comfy Wrap, is actually the Comfy Cone for the body because as much as I love the Comfy Cone, I made it, I hate putting a cone on a dog, even the comfy cone, if they don't need it. So the comfy wrap is the comfy cone for the body, meaning it's the same material. It goes around the torso, up through the chest, over the back. So this way, if the pet has allergies or if it's a hot spot on the side, one of our pets, Seamus, who's a very large Pyrenean Mastiff, he always gets hot spots on his side. So he doesn't need the shape, the cone shape to heal. He just needed that part covered. So for that, I used the comfy wrap, and that's how that was. That's how that one started for Seamus. I'm gonna have but to I, get. I'm gonna have to get a comfy wrap for my cousin's German Shepherd Luger, who is always getting hot spots on the left side of his body, yeah. and he just digs into himself, and it's so scary, Linda. I mean, you can see him actually scratching himself and hurting himself. 
Um, so I need one of those comfy wraps from you, Linda. How many? How much sales do you have at all four pars? What 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 kind of business has this turned into for you, Linda? If you don't mind sharing. No, it's been, thank God, a very successful business, and we are international now. We're in about twelve countries, and um, I will always be creating new products, and we have two other products that we have which aren't, I would say, the Comfy Cone and the Comfy Wrap are our heart and soul, but we have other products like the white bed and the chill collar that we also make that also serve a purpose. So anything we make will serve a purpose and will be creative and will be our own design. I do patent our designs, and they are unique, and, um, you know, we we work like that. Well, Linda, thanks for all you do for all the animal owners out there, and particularly the animals out there. The comfy cone, the comfy wrap, white bitch, chill collars. Go to allfourpaws.com. That's allfourpaws.com. We love small business stories. We love entrepreneurs, and we love our pets, and this merges all of the above. Linda, thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Our American Stories. Thank you.